Okay, so let's see what I've got here. We are still in the study of the, uh, the life of Christ. And Kyle has asked me, since he's out of town today, to set the stage for his lessons regarding uh, the birth of Jesus and, of course, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus after that uh, by talking about John the Immerser. And so that's what we're going to do during this period of time. Uh, we've got almost uh, 55 minutes to cover this, and I'll see how much we can cover, hopefully all of it, during that period of time. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And we will be spending the bulk of our time, though we will be going back and forth through various scriptures. I do like to take the time to read the scriptures to be sure that we know that the things that are being taught are in God's word. But the bulk of our time will be spent in the narrative of John's birth in Luke 1, 5 through 25, and verses 57 through 80. Let's start out by talking about, I'm, I'm one of those people who likes background Bible study. I like to know what's going on, what the setting is in different situations. And so we want to talk about the setting into which John was to be born. And I've got three, <clears throat> three areas that I want to, uh, to highlight to consider the situation when John, the announcement came to his father in the temple, as we'll read here in just a little bit. First of all, let's talk about the polit political setting. Um, it was uh, Roman domination, of course, during the time that uh, Judah, where Jerusalem was located, was a, uh, a Roman province or territory. So that means that they were under the uh, leadership or the government of the Romans. The Romans' method of handling the nations that they conquered was a little bit different. Or as previous powers would have gone in and taken a, a country and insisted that they do things their way, everything their way, including their religion, uh, the Romans were a little bit more open-minded than that. The Romans were pretty much, well, you can keep your religion as long as it doesn't violate anything as far as you being a Roman citizen. And so that's why you have quite a, uh, a large number of uh, different types of religions in the time that uh, Jesus came in the flesh and in this time when John was coming. So the Roman Empire was dominant. Judah was one of its provinces. It was conquered by the Romans in 63 AD. When John came into the world, Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor. And some have said that uh, this Roman historian said this was the most prolific time in the Roman history, that Augustus was quite a, a leader, uh, apparently thought uh, pretty well of himself as those around him thought of him as well, calling him Augustus. You know, we get the term August, our month August from that. We get our term, our month July from Julius, Julius Caesar. But uh, Augustus means one who's grand or reverend. And the biggest thing I would say about Caesar Augustus as it relates to John coming into the world is that he considered himself to be a god and accepted worship as a god. After he died, the Roman Senate decided, see if you like this one, they decided that they would vote him as god. So he got votes to be God. And they basically said he was after he died. So again, considering the, the religious confusion and disparity that was going on throughout the, the land in Jerusalem when John came into the world. So then we deal with Herod the Great in Luke chapter one and verse five. 
It says there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah. So that's who we're talking about. Now the Herods, by and large, you're not going to find that they were too good of a folk. Uh, Herod the Great had been appointed king by the Romans about 40 years earlier. Uh, the Jews did not want him to be. He was an Idumean, which means that he was from the lineage of Ishmael, and they didn't want him to be their king. But uh, Herod was quite the, quite the politician and was able to work his way into the position of king. He oversaw the rebuilding of the temple, which he gets a lot of credit for. They still refer to it historically as Herod's temple. And yet when you look a little bit deeper into it, you find that he did not rebuild the temple because of his love for God and his commitment to building the temple uh, for godly purposes. That Herod did it more as a political ploy. He knew the people were not too happy with him, so he decided to throw them a bone and rebuild the temple. And it was quite elaborate what he did rebuild, but he did rebuild the temple. But Herod the Great was a very wicked man. He, uh, he killed his wife. He had a wife whose name was Mary Amne, and he killed her. He killed her mother. He killed their two sons. Um, one of the last things that he did before he died was to have another of his sons murdered. There's an old saying by, by one of the Caesars. The uh, Greek word for son and the Greek word for hog were very close. And there was a saying by one of the Caesars that said, I would rather be Herod's hog than his son, because as a Jew, Herod would not have touched a hog, but he would kill his children. So I thought that was an interesting thing. But anyway, Back to Herod, this is the one we read about in Matthew chapter 2. You know what happened in Matthew chapter 2, right? Let's look in Matthew 2.16 real quick just to give an idea who Herod was, and then we'll tie that together here in just a second. In Matthew chapter 2, the chapter opens up with the, uh, the wise men coming into Jerusalem and meeting Herod, saying that they had come to see, to find the one who was born king of the Jews. And of course, Herod didn't like that because he was king of the Jews. And he did not want any rivals. And the, um, the wise men moved on. And Herod, verse 16 says, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding angry and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So now you know who Herod the Great is. He is the one who orchestrated the murdering of these many, many children during this time. So that's the kind of political atmosphere into which John was to be born. That's how things were at that particular time. Let's talk about his family. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1. John had, was coming into a great family. We have Zacharias. Luke 1 and verse 5, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. The name Zacharias and Names had a good deal of meaning during those times, maybe not as much now. But the name Zacharias means remembered of Jehovah. He was a faithful man of God. He was from the family of Abijah. He was in the lineage of Aaron. Thus, he was a priest. If you go back, and we won't do this, just a reference if you're making notes. If you go back to 1 Chronicles 24, 1 through 19, you'll find that David, King David, when he was ruling, had divided up the house of the Lord among 24 different men, uh, appointing them, well, dividing them basically 
their responsibilities to serve in the house of God. And one of those men he divided up to was Abijah. And that's where uh, the uh, distant relative of, uh, of Zechariah. So Luke 1 and verse 5 says Zechariah was from the course or division of Abijah. And in this particular time that we're reading about in Luke chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 say, say it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So they divided up the responsibilities of service in the temple, including the burning of the incense. So that's Zecharias. You have his wife, Elizabeth. The name Elizabeth means oath of God. And she was also from the lineage of Aaron. So they're both from that family. Verse 6 says of Luke chapter 1, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. So John's going to be born into a very godly family. But now the spiritual setting of the day. It had been about 400 years earlier that Malachi wrote his inspired message or gave his inspired message. During that period of time, which has been labeled over the years, the intertestamental period, the time from when Malachi wrote his book until this particular time we're talking about now. It was about a 400 year period. And during that time, you don't find any more inspired books being written. 400 years had passed. Now there apparently was still some, some activity. Uh, God was still active, of course, he always has been and always will be. As the earth stands, we know he'll be here amongst us. Uh, we read about Simeon in Luke chapter two, who had been told by the Lord that he would see the Christ. So the Lord had certainly spoken to Simeon. In that same chapter, we read about a prophetess named Anna. So we know that God was, was somehow working through her. But it appears that Malachi was the last inspired book that had been written. And then that 400 year period came. Well, during that 400 year period is when uh, the Jewish sects developed. So you remember in the New Testament, you read about the Pharisees and you read about the Sadducees and you read about the Herodians. Those are the three we mainly read about but there were others as well. The zealots are mentioned there. In fact, uh, Jesus even had an apostle who was a zealot, didn't they? And a zealot was just what you would think he would be. It was one who was zealous for Jerusalem or for Zion and uh, strongly opposed anything to do with, uh, with Rome. So you had the zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. You also had the Essenes and the Zadokites. So again, you've got this setting into which John is coming, the political setting, which again is tense because Rome, excuse me, uh, Jerusalem does not like to be under the governance of Rome. You have Herod, who's a very evil man. You have the counterbalance there with the good godly parents of Zacharias and Elizabeth. But then you have this religious setting, the spiritual setting, where you have this division had occurred where people by the way, see if this sounds like 2021. People had become dissatisfied with the simple, pure word of God and decided they wanted to create their own way. It was during this time, also this intertestamental period that uh, the Apocrypha, which we refer to now as the Apocrypha, a word that means hidden, the Apocryphal books were developed, none of which was inspired by God, none of which was uh, even believed by the majority of people to be inspired by God, but nonetheless, they did catch on during their time because part of them talked about 
rebellion and they wanted to rebel against Rome. So you had this going on and then in addition to that, you had the traditions that had been developed. So look with me in Matthew chapter 15 in verses one through three. This is when Jesus was during his ministry, but it shows what had been established during this time, Matthew 15, one through three says, then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem saying, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of their elders? Now, what would have been a better question? Why do your disciples violate the word of God, right? But that's not what they asked because that's not what they were concerned about. They were concerned about their traditions being violated. He said, and they said, because they wash not their hands when they eat bread. And of course, Jesus responds to that in verse three, why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Then he gives an example about how they were violating the word of God with their tradition. Okay, so spiritually speaking, when this, these events of Luke chapter one occur, spiritually speaking, there were some righteous individuals as was indicated by, by uh, at least Zacharias and, and Elizabeth, and of course, Mary and Joseph. There were some righteous individuals, but there was also a great deal of, of self-serve service, of selfishness, of promote my way over everybody else's way of sectarianism. And you recall how Jesus, when he came, especially as his ministry began, how he had to constantly deal with those who were promoting their way above God's ways. And also to throw this in, you see this when we come to the, uh, the ministry of Jesus, but it was already occurring when we read in Luke chapter one there was a, a class system that had developed. Now, I mentioned sectarianism, but there's also a class system that had developed where if you were not part of, say, the Pharisees, the Pharisees considering themselves to be the, the, the rigid keepers of the law of God, if you weren't part of their group, you know what they called you? You were a sinner. Or you might even be called a dog and the poor were being neglected. We'll talk about if we have time later on when, when John in Matthew chapter 14, when John, uh, during the ministry of Jesus, sent to Jesus, sent disciples to him and said, are you the one who should come or do we seek another? And Jesus' response to him was to tell him that these miracles are being performed, but also he said, tell John that the poor are being preached to. You see, you get, again, I'm kind of getting into Kyle's territory, but I'm sure he won't mind for just a minute. But you see why people receive Jesus so well, at least initially, is because he showed compassion for everybody. He didn't single people out and said, well, you're, you're a dog, you're a sinner, you don't belong in my class. I'm not gonna deal with you. And so you see how that compassion drew people toward him, don't you? Well, this was the situation when John came into the world, there was the political situation, there was his good family, which was to balance out the difficulties that were without, and then there was the spiritual situation. But God had to return to his way in mind, despite all the confusion being called by politics and, and, and the religion of the day, God had a way to return on his mind. The prophet who spoke 400 years prior to the coming of John and Jesus was Malachi. Let's jump over the last book of the Old Testament, 
Let's go to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, and then we'll go to chapter 4. And we want to look at these prophecies of the final written prophet of the Old Testament. Malachi 3 and verse 1 says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. And then in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, the very last words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now we're going to talk about Elijah here in just a little bit. But let's go back to Luke chapter 1 now and notice how the Bible ties things together for us. Again, the last thing that Malachi talked about was Elijah coming to turn the hearts of the people back to God. When Gabriel, the angel, is speaking to Zecharias about the coming birth of his son, he says in verse 17, He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, folks, there are some good books out there, good study guides to help you study your Bible. There's some good commentaries, some thoughtful individuals who studied carefully texts and, and, and words and so on, and make some good comments, helpful comments on understanding the Bible. But when a Bible passage explains another Bible passage, that's what you call an inspired commentary. In other words, you can't argue with that one. And so when the angel of God, the messenger of God, Gabriel, said to Zacharias, this is what Malachi was talking about, then we know what Malachi was talking about. Malachi was prophesying the coming of John, the one who's going to be named John. So we'll talk more about that again when we talk more about Elijah and John in just a little bit. All right, so let's go back to Luke chapter 1 and start breaking down some of the verses. Verse 7 says, They had no child, that is Zechariah and, and Elizabeth. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. The New King James says they were well advanced in years. Basically, they were considered by most to be past their child-producing years. Now, we don't know how old they were, but this was not an unprecedented event because we do have example in the scriptures of older couples having children, do we not? Of course, the most famous would be who? Okay, Sarah and Abraham, correct. Read about them and you see the scriptures. I know it's kind of small, Genesis 17 and Genesis chapter 18. Read about that, but they weren't the only ones. They're the ones who are mentioned by age at being 90 and 100 years old. But you have some others too, for instance. Again, we don't know how old these other couples were, but they're examples of, of how they had to be patient, how it took many, many years for them to have children. Another example would be Rachel and Jacob. It was many years into their marriage that Joseph was born and then Benjamin was born and then uh, Rachel passed away during the birth of Benjamin. Then there was, that's in Genesis 35. Then in Judges chapter 13, we read about Manoah and his wife. Uh, she bore Samson, the judge Samson, and they were quite aged or quite well in years. They had gone several years without children. 
And then one other example of that would be in 1 Samuel chapter 1, where we read about Elkanah and Hannah. And Hannah gave birth to, uh, to Samuel, the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. The key phrase when we're talking about this older couple, especially whether we talk about all these or as we're isolating Zacharias and Elizabeth now, when the Lord spoke through his messenger to Abraham and then to Sarah in Genesis chapter 17 and Genesis chapter 18, he said this, he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Because you remember Abraham's initial response, what he do? He laughed, right? And Sarah's initial response when she heard that she was going to have a baby, she just, she could not believe it. And she laughed. But God said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Which interestingly enough, if you go into Luke chapter one, after this discussion that Gabriel had had with Zecharias, and then that Gabriel had with Mary, verse 37 says, Luke chapter one, with God, nothing shall be impossible. And God illustrated that, didn't he? And he still does several times. The importance of having children as we're talking about that in that particular society was so great that some, and I've got this in big red letters, uninspired, this is not in the scriptures, but some of the uninspired Jewish writings said that divorce was permitted if a wife had not produced a child within 10 years of marriage. Again, you won't read that in the word of God, but that's the way some had developed some of those traditions, some of those teachings of men, okay? Now, this question, because I like to ask why a lot, I was probably very annoying as a little kid. I'm not sure, but I imagine I was. One of those people who asked why the sky was blue. But I want to know why as much as I can, and we're not always told in the Word of God, so we have to be satisfied with that and trust uh, God. But I'm curious as to why God would have chosen an older childless couple here. So just a couple of ideas that I have in regard to that. And again, this is just conjecture, but just some ideas. Perhaps it was to illustrate the truth that we just read of chapter 1, verse 37. With God, nothing shall be impossible. Now, there, there's going to be a lot of things happening here as we read about here in Luke chapter 1. And as you keep on reading in Luke chapter 2, there are going to be a lot of unusual things, things that people weren't used to seeing. So another thought as to why God might have chosen an older childless couple to bring John into the world uh, was perhaps uh, as an attention getter. With the other sur aspects surrounding John's birth, for instance, we're going to see as we go through here, John, excuse me, Zacharias lost his ability to speak. Let me back up. He didn't lose it. It was taken away from him. His speech was taken away from him. Uh, the baby was given the name John, where it was totally unusual because it wasn't a family name and tradition demanded that they do things according to the family history. And then, of course, you have the, the, the birth of, of Jesus, the miraculous conception of Jesus. And then you have several other things that are going on that are, are unusual for people to see. Even for that matter, going back here to Luke chapter 1, the fact that uh, Gabriel is coming there and speaking face to face with Zacharias. That's something that was unusual for that time. So perhaps that was the reason to give an attention getter. 
Perhaps another reason that God chose an older childless couple, this particular couple, is because of their faithfulness, because of their long time faithfulness, that he is blessing them with this opportunity. And perhaps he chose them as an answer to their prayers. If you look in Luke 1 and verse 13, the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, thy prayer is heard. So somewhere in the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah had been praying for a child, and God blessed him. Now, I put a side note in here that when I read this, he said, the angel said to Zechariah, your prayer is heard. It made me think of what Paul said in Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Because you can imagine Zechariah asking for a son, asking for a child. Ephesians 3 and verse 20 says of God's blessings, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worked in us. So when I, I read that, I think about Zechariah asking for a child. And not only do they have a child, but they have this one who's going to be the Elijah, the one who's going to be the voice in the wilderness, the one who's going to be preparing the way for the Messiah. God went way beyond just giving them a regular child. He provided for them exceedingly and abundantly. So I think that's a good illustration of that. Verses 8 through 10 of Luke chapter 1. It came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of his priest, the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. I've got to remember to push that thing. There you go. So this would have been occurring, what Zechariah was doing would have been occurring in the holy place of the temple. This is the place where only the priests were allowed to go. There was the most holy place where the high priest was permitted to go, but the holy place itself was that in which the priests only were allowed to go. The altar of incense, you go back to Exodus 30, verses one through 10, and you find that as being a part of the law of Moses. The altar of incense was located just it was located in the, the holy place, just outside of the most holy place. And you would even find, if you go to Exodus 30 and verse 34, that the incense that they offered was specific. God gave them specific ingredients to use in their incense in Exodus 30 and verse 34. That's why when you come to Leviticus 10 verses 1 and 2, and you read about Nadab and Abihu, who were punished by God, for offering a strange fire because they offered something which God had not commanded. God had not told them to use a certain, that particular type that they had been using. God had specified what to use and they didn't do it. And so God punished them for that. The incense served as a type or a foreshadowing of prayer. <clears throat> in Psalm 141 and verse two, looks like I forgot to put this on that overhead. On that slide, Psalm 141 and verse 2 talks about the incense burning being a type of prayer. Psalm 141 and verse 2, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. And Revelation 5 and verse 8 says that the prayers of the saints are like golden vials or bowls full of incense. So the incense was a type, not to be offered to God continuously, it was under the old covenant, the law of Moses, it was offered. And now 
that represented our prayers. So now our prayers are those things which are pleasing to God, which are a sweet savor to God. God wants to hear us pray. And so that is why we now, how we see Zechariah involved with this time. You notice it says that, that there, were, there were lots cast in verse nine. That's pretty much how they decided who was gonna to get to burn the incense. It's just kind of a, kind of a casting the lots to determine who would get that particular job for that particular time. Verses 11 through 17. We're looking now at Gabriel's announcement. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So go back to verse 13. What's in a name? Well, why is he being called John? Well, it's because that's what God, through the angel, told him to call him. The name John means Jehovah is a gracious giver. Can you think of a better name for this one who is going to be the one preparing the way for the Messiah? Jehovah is a gracious giver. Zacharias was a good name, but this was more applicable to him in that particular time. Let's jump over a few verses over to verse 57 through verse 63. This is upon the birth of, of, uh, of John. Now Elizabeth's full time came. This is chapter one of Luke, verse 57. Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered and she brought forth a son. Her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. His mother answered and said, not so. He shall be called John. They said unto her, and there is none of thy kindred that's called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. Now weren't those some helpful neighbors? When's the last time you had a, a community get together for a, a, a new baby and all the neighbors said, well, I think you ought to call him this. Or I think you ought to call it. Now I grant you that family wants to help and friends want to help, don't they? But here they seem determined that they were gonna name that baby Zacharias. Even they just didn't want to listen to the mother. They wanted the father to confirm. Nope, it's not Zacharias, it's gonna be John. Let's go back to verse 14. Verse 14 says, you shall have, talking to Zechariah, you shall have joy and gladness. The word joy, again, is pretty obvious what he's talking about. Gladness, uh, in your version, may say joy there as well or something similar to that. But it's actually uh, an increased level of joy. It's an extreme exaltation. Uh, Zechariah, you're going to have joy. Well, sure he would because he's been hoping for a son and praying for a son for, for years. So he's going to have joy. But he's also going to have this extreme exaltation over who this individual is going to become. In verse 44, you see the same word, let's see, verse 44 of chapter 1 says, uh, when Mary came to see Mary and, uh, excuse me, when Mary and Elizabeth saw one another, 
Elizabeth says, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe that is John leaped in my womb for joy. Extreme exultation. So, the, and then we ask the question, why would many rejoice at his birth at the end of verse 14 says, well, verse 58 answers that question. Her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her and they rejoiced with her. Why would so many rejoice with him? because the family had been blessed and they knew the righteousness of this good godly couple. But also, those who knew the scriptures, those who knew the word of God, knew about Malachi's prophecy. And they would have understood, at least partially anyway, and would have rejoiced at knowing that God is fulfilling his promises. Again, you, you, you just kind of put yourself back in the mindset of a person in Jerusalem during that time, you're, you're a faithful Jewish person and you've read the scriptures and you're familiar with what the word of God says and you know that the last thing that Malachi said when he wrote was to expect someone great to come and prepare the way. Well, you know he's preparing the way for the Messiah, the one you're looking for. And so here comes John and it's a unique situation or at least an unusual situation anyway. And the people are excited thinking maybe this is it. Something else to consider too. I know Brother Gene, you taught the intertestamental period. You've taught that before. During that time, that 400 year period between Malachi and these events we read in Luke chapter one, there were a lot of people who jumped up and assumed that they were the ones who were supposed to be the Messiah. And if they didn't assume it, there were those who tried to label that upon them who assumed that the Messiah was going to be the one who would come and release them from Roman uh, dominion. But the people who understood the scriptures understood that there was something spiritual about it, not physical like they were expecting. Verse 15 says he, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, folks, there's a key phrase for us that should apply to all of us. What are we striving for? Are we striving to be great in the eyes of the world? Well, that's rather fruitless, isn't it? You know, there are some, just to illustrate that, there are some great, there have been some great athletes in my lifetime. And I would say, while most of us can think of, oh, let's say like baseball, go back, show my age a little bit, like a Ted Williams, or go back before my time, like a Babe Ruth or a Lou Gehrig or someone like that. We're impressed with someone who can be the top batting average, be the top home run hitter, be the best pitcher. But you know what? To be the second best Major League Baseball hitter or the second best Major League Baseball pitcher in history is pretty impressive, don't you think? What about the third? Or the fourth or the fifth? I think that's pretty impressive. I'm never gonna be. I never imagine that I would be and I never would be would have been but now how many of us remember the second best or the third best or the fourth best you see there are a lot of greats in the world but they get forgotten I would imagine when the Olympics were begun back under Grecian rule several centuries ago that there were some mighty good athletes you don't really read about them do you so great is a term in the eyes of the world that is relative. 
But here in this scripture, it says that this one who is to be born, John, shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And that's the key phrase. So what would he be to others to the, in the eyes of the world? Well, we know he was great in the eyes of God. But if you go back to Matthew chapter 11, you find that in the eyes of the world, John was, among other things, a curiosity. So in Matthew chapter 11, and in verse 7, as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. Verse 8 again, he says, What went ye out for to see? A man dressed in soft raiment. Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's, king's houses. So apparently, John was a curiosity. People heard about this man who was out there near the Jordan, who was immersing people. He was dressed in camel's hair. He was eating locusts and honey. Well, he was a curiosity, wasn't he? That wasn't anybody, like anybody they had heard of or seen before. But also, in the eyes of the world, he was an object of derision. Keeping the same chapter there in Matthew chapter 11, in verse 18, says, Jesus said, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a devil. They like to throw that term around a little bit. Remember they did that to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12? That by the power of Beelzebub, he casts out demons. So in the eyes of the world, John wasn't necessarily that great. But again, that's not what matters. Gabriel emphasized that John would be great in the sight of the Lord, and that is what matters. Some suggest that John was a Nazarite based on verse 15. We know about the Nazarite vow. If you go back to Numbers chapter 6, the Nazarite vow did include allowing one's hair to grow without being cut. You remember Samson was under a Nazarite vow, and um, Samuel was as well. Was John? I don't know. Uh, it doesn't say anything about him being having his hair shorn in any way or, or allowing his hair to continue to grow. But nonetheless, we see that his focus, verse 15, indicates that John's focus was to be on doing God's will. He was not to allow any worldly distractions to deter him. He specifies here uh, that he would not use alcohol, his mind would not be clouded by such as that, but that his life would instead be guided by the Holy Spirit. This is that, this is, that's how important the work that he has to do is, that he has to stay focused. Verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17, we already read, Many of the children of Israel shall, be, shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, this is a reference to Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Let's talk about Elijah here. Elijah, I uh, read about him in 2 Kings chapter 17, excuse me, 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings chapter 2. Elijah was a, a mighty prophet of God. Elijah is known along with Enoch as being as one of the individuals who uh, did not die went straight to be with the Lord, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11. There were misunderstandings from the people of the day about what this meant when they're talking about Elijah was to come. Even Jesus' disciples asked him about, is Elijah going to come? So there were some misunderstandings. The Israelites in the first century at least expressed a high regard for Elijah. 
in Matthew 16 and verse 14, when Jesus asked in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say you're Jeremiah, and some say you're Elijah, or one of the prophets. In Matthew 27 and verse 49, some thought that Elijah would have the power to come and save Jesus from the cross. They told him to leave him alone, don't give him anything. Let's see if Elijah comes down and saves him. Malachi 4 and verse 5, we already read that. But remember there that God had said he would send Elijah. And some took this literally, thinking that Elijah was to be reincarnated. In John 1 and verse 21, John 1 and verse 21, speaking to John, the people who were around John said, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. So they even thought John might be the reincarnated Elijah. Interestingly enough, when Jews even today observe their Passover, they set a cup, I don't know if they all do, but this was from one of the uh, uh, Jewish resources that I had. They, uh, during the Passover, they actually set out a cup at the table for Elijah. And they save a chair for him and they leave the door open for him as though he's going to come back. But the key phrase here in regard to the statement of prophecy made by Malachi regarding the fact that Elijah was to come, the key phrase in Luke 1 and verse 17 is that he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And again, in Matthew 17, when the disciples asked Jesus about is Elijah coming, Jesus says, he's already come. And he talks for briefly about that, and then the scriptures say that then the disciples knew that he spoke to them of John. So John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. How did he come in the spirit of Elijah? Well, what was the spirit of Elijah? The spirit of Elijah was to do the will of God, his commitment to do the will of God. What about the power of Elijah? Well, did not Elijah demonstrate the power of God through his works? That's exactly what John is going to do in the same manner. There are some similarities between the two, Elijah and John, and John the Immerser. Uh, you find they dressed similarly, 2 Kings 1 and verse 8, Matthew 3 and verse 4. Uh, 1 Kings 16, 30 and 33, Elijah battled King Ahab, and King Ahab is infamous for the statement made about him in 1 Kings chapter 16, that he was the worst king there ever was in the, in the history of Judah. Which is interesting because just before that, his father Amri had ruled, and the writer says that Amri was the worst king, the most evil king they'd ever had. Then he came on, and when he talks about their son, he talks about his son Ahab, he says he was worse than his father was. So this is who Elijah had to battle. Well, we come to Luke chapter 3 and verse 7. We find that John had to deal with people he called a generation of vipers. So he had that similarity in his battle with those who were evil. In 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah called Israel to turn back to God. John, Luke 1, 16 and 17, would call the people to turn back to God. Now here's what John would do. John would, according to these verses that we just read, 16 and 17, Okay, there it is. See how much time I had. This sure went by in a hurry. I'm only halfway through my notes. What John would do, according to these verses, John would turn many Israelites to the Lord. Look at this. There, 
God. Notice the emphasis on that. And I don't have time for this, but I wish I did because I would like to go back to Isaiah chapter 42 and go through about five or six chapters there where God repeatedly says to his people of the day, to Judah, I am the Lord, I am God, there is none beside me. And while those are, are, are powerful statements defending the existence of the one true God and that the God of the Bible is the one true God, it's also kind of sad because God was having, it seems like, to remind his people who he was. He was having, because they had gone off after so many God, other quote-unquote gods, it's almost as if he is having to say, by the way, here's the one true God and it's me. And this is to his own people he's having to say that. Well, there's no coincidence here in, in Luke 1 and verse 17, excuse me, verse 16, that he says that John is going to turn people to the Lord, their God, not another God, but specifically to their God. Notice it says that he's going to go before him, verse 17. The him here is Jesus, who is here referred to as God. Now, get in your mind a picture here. If you can imagine a highly respected individual coming into town in that day, maybe a king or another person of importance, before they get to the city limits, there is a herald going before them. And what's that herald doing? Their herald is going up and down the streets, shouting out, the great one is coming. The king is here. When I was in the South Pacific, in the uh, little island nation of, of Tonga, they had just that same kind of situation. It's a kingdom. It's the only kingdom in the South Pacific. And when the king would come out, first of all, you couldn't even look at him. I don't know why, but you weren't allowed to look at him. So we you know, wanted to honor the traditions there and we didn't look. But somebody came out and said, the king is coming. So everybody would know to look down and not look at the face of the king. Well, what's John doing? What's John going to do? It says he's going to go before him. He's going to lead the way. He's going to be the herald. He's going to be the one saying, here he comes. Here's the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. He's going to prepare the way for the Christ to come. That's what he says in verse 17. He's also going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, verse 17. Perhaps a reference to family here. You know, in Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 9, when you go back to the law of Moses, you find that it was the responsibility of the parents to teach their children to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 9. Perhaps that's something that they had gotten away from in following man-made gods. That, you know, the fact that Israel went away, the, the northern kingdom of Israel just you know, basically being obliterated and the southern kingdom being taken off into to Babylonian captivity, that didn't happen overnight. That happened as a result of a lack of teaching or a lack of a focus on the one true God. So John was going to be calling people back, devoting to devote themselves to leading in God's way. John would also turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and he would prepare people and make them ready for the Lord. Well, how did he do that? I'm going to run out of time. But Luke 3, 13, excuse me, Luke 3, 3 through 14, talks about how he did that. The people came to John to be immersed of him, and 
they were asking some questions. What are we to do? And John explained to them very clearly what they were to do in preparing for the coming of the Christ. Verses 18 through 20. A familiar response we see from Zechariah when he says to the angel, whereby shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife well stricken in years. Again, that's the same thing, same kind of response that Abraham and Sarah gave. Zacharias was not the first one to ask for visual proof of one of God's promises. That's what he's doing. How do, you know, I'm an old man. What kind of proof can you give me that I'm going to have a child? My wife and I are going to have a child. I've, the example I've got here is of Gideon back in Judges chapter 6. Again, we don't have time to go into that. But if you want to read Judges 6, 36 through 40, about how Gideon was told by God that he would deliver the Israelites from the Amalekites and the Midianites. And Gideon says, well, let me put a put a piece of fleece on the ground. I would like it to be wet and the ground to be dry. And again, you can read the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. So keep reading on here. Verse 18, verse 19. The angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. I'm sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. Behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou did not, did not believe my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. The people waited the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak unto them. They perceived he had seen a vision in the temple, and he beckoned to them and remained speechless. It came to pass as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Well, there's a lot of information there and there. We're going to run out of time. Basically, Zacharias had his voice taken away from him. But you know what? Zacharias continued to serve in God's temple. He didn't use that as a reason or an excuse to stop serving God faithfully. He continued to serve him even during that time. If we were to read on, and I don't know if Kyle may want to go through this. I don't know if he expected me to finish all of this. So I'll let him decide if he wants to go back over this. But basically, we've set the stage for the birth of John. And when we come to the birth of John, beginning in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1 through the end of the chapter, we find what we just read earlier about Zechariah writing down that his name is going to be John. And then he began to speak. He was able to speak. And then the Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 67 and began to prophesy or, or to to teach the Word of God. And it's marvelous the things that he has to say about the blessings that God was going to bring through John and all the great things that John was going to be doing. John was a very bold individual who was not afraid to speak God's truth. He wasn't afraid to be different because that's what he needed to be. He served God well because he knew what his role was. And his role was to honor and glorify God and to prepare the way for the Christ. And you got to admire John let me just throw this in and then we'll finish up. Do I get two bells or three? I'll take three. If you don't hear the third one, I'll get you on before midnight. Now I want you to look in, I'd like you to look with me in John chapter three and I want to conclude just with this. This is one of the things that I greatly admire about John. John had his disciples, did he not? John had those who were following him. We read about it in John chapter one. But you know what, when you read that, and I'll come to chapter three here in just a second, but when you read in John chapter one, in verse 29, 
and then down in verse 36, it seems like when John saw Jesus, and this is again, now they're, now they're adults, now the earthly ministry of Jesus is about to start. It seems that when John saw Jesus, he would say, behold, he would point to him and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John's disciples started leaving him to go follow Jesus. Now, one of the problems that occurred with the Pharisees and the Sadducees during this time was that their followers were leaving them to go follow Jesus. They didn't like that. They were losing their power. John was not worried about that. So we'll go to John chapter 3, verse 25. There arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. They came unto John, said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold the same baptized, and all men come to him. He's talking about Jesus. People are going, John, people are starting to follow Jesus. John says, a man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. Verse 29, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. Look at verse 30. He that is Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Folks, you gotta admire that. John knew what his role was. His role was to prepare the way. He openly said to people, when they asked him, are you the Christ? No, I'm not. John recognized his role and he carried it out faithfully. What a great man of humility to be able to do that. Again, especially in the light of, of the day and especially when you consider how egos get in the way, right? Egos get in the way. I don't want to lose people following me. I'm using that accommodatively. I don't have followers. But John was a great man of God who did his role, fulfilled his role well. Thank you for your time. We'll let Kyle pick up from there next week. We are dismissed.